All right. Well, we should have just had David keep preaching, man. I was, I was ready for it. Like, bring it, man, bring it. So that's great that God has raised him up and so many faithful people to go out there and tell people about Jesus. Just happened last night. We were uh, meeting with a pastor friend of mine from South Africa and his wife, and uh, and uh, we were walking by and here all these people were in mass handing out tracts and. Uh, David had some guy cornered and was talking to him about Jesus, and I walked a little bit farther, and another guy was preaching the gospel, and um, so uh, we went and saw Leah at Starbucks as she was working, and then came back and uh, got to have a little fellowship with them, and uh, came back, and David had a different guy cornered and was telling him about Jesus, and so um, I'd encourage you to get involved in that ministry. You can go and just kind of just be a watcher if you want. It's pretty exciting just to uh, break out and and just really start realizing there's people out there by the billions who are on their way to hell, and uh, they they do need to hear about Jesus. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke 21. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, we're actually going to be looking mostly at verses uh, 1 through 6 of 22, but we're going to finish up these last two verses because they didn't quite fit into the last sermon and they don't really fit into this one. They're kind of a parenthetical statement, but we'll start there and then we'll work through the passage. But when it comes to betrayal, I think we all know that Judas Iscariot is really at the top of the chart. He is, uh, his name is a synonym for betrayal. If you are a Judas or give somebody a Judas kiss, uh, um, you really uh, are betraying them. He was called by Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus perform all the miracles. And even in the upper room, you can tell when you look at the gospels that Jesus is disturbed. He is hurting over Judas. Even in the garden, when Judas brings the mob to arrest Jesus, Jesus calls him friend after Judas gives him that betraying kiss. And yet Judas betrayed him. Alfred Edersheim, in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, describes for us the infamous moment when Judas, one of the twelve, committed himself to betray Christ, saying, quote, For one of them, in whose heart the darkness had long been gathering, this was the decisive moment. The prediction of Christ, which Judas, as well as the others, must have felt to be true, extinguished the last glimmering of such a light of Christ as his soul had been capable of receiving. In its place flared up the lurid flame of hell. And by the open door out of which he had thrust the dying Christ, Satan entered into Judas. This description kind of makes us shudder. How could one so close to Christ, so privileged as Judas, at the time of Jesus's really um, popularity spike, wander off? And betray him. How could that happen? Because Judas was an unbeliever. Because Satan entered into him. 
But it is also true that while Judas was plotting and Satan was plotting and using Judas, someone else was plotting. And that someone was God. They were at that very moment falling in to the plan of an all-sovereign God. If you look at Luke 21, verse 37 and 38, we have this little parenthetical statement. We could have mentioned it last week or this week, but uh, I just want to mention it. Verse 37 says, Now, during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple and listen to him. So uh, it's the last week of Jesus' life. It is the uh, Passover is approaching. And following the Passover will be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so... Multitudes of Jews have come to Jerusalem from all over the place, hundreds of thousands of them packed in, uh, staying in people's houses, uh, just swarming Jerusalem. Some are committed, others, most of them, part of the fickle multitudes who are willing to give Jesus some lip service and a little bit of, you know, support as long as he fulfills their personal agenda. So swarms of people are there. Jesus has been led in triumph uh, up to the, the temple mount. They've thrown their coats in the ground, the palm branches, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of David. They've declared him to be the Messiah. They've declared him to be the Messiah in the hearing of the Jewish leaders. Jesus has spent several days on the Temple Mount teaching and preaching and telling people he is the Messiah, going toe-to-toe with the Jewish leaders, uh, answering all their questions, astonishing them, forcing them to the conclusion that he is the Son of God. And they know this. They know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, and yet they hate him. They hate him. Jesus, after speaking these days on the Temple Mount, has come to the conclusion that it's over with them. He's finished his public ministry, and now he's retreated. And he has talked to the disciples on the Mount of Olives about the future of what is going to happen to Jerusalem and way into the future, what is going to happen before he comes again in glory. Now, you need to step back for a moment here from the text and step back as far as you are able to look at these events from the perspective of an all-sovereign God, a God who existed before anything was, before there were stars, the sun, the moon, the universe, when there was nothing except the triune Godhead, perfect and complete, needing nothing, Get all the way back before the foundation of the world. You're all-knowing, all-wise. Everything is at your disposal. You have all power, can do anything you want. 
And you decide that you are going to create a universe and you're going to create a planet in that universe and you're going to put men created in your image on that planet. And then you begin to think as you know all things and know all possibilities of all things, how you're going to do it. And you're going to do it in the most perfect way that cannot be improved upon. Because you are God and everything you do is perfect. And so you have in the counsel of your infinite knowledge and wisdom decided that you will allow for the fall of man. You will create angels and allow a third of them to rebel and follow one of the chief angels in rebellion against you. It is the best plan. It is the most perfect plan and it cannot be improved upon. You see creation, you see the rebellion, you see the consequences of sin in the world. You see evil, you see good, you see the joy of saving sinners. You see the need for a perfect sacrifice, a perfect man to die in substitution for those men whom you gave a choice to who now have rebelled against you. But you also see that there will be no perfect man because all men will be sinners in Adam. Because when Adam falls and you know he's going to fall because you created him with the ability to fall and you knew before it happened that Satan would rebel. You knew he would go into the garden. You knew he would deceive Eve. You knew Adam would willfully rebel. You knew all of that. You knew the curse would then come upon him so that all of Adam's descendants would all be sinners too. So there would be no man, no perfect man who could die in substitution to pay the penalty for those guilty sinners. So in the council of the Godhead, it is agreed that one of you will be a mediator between God and men and become a man yourself and live as a man and die as a man and offer yourself as a human sacrifice in substitution for unworthy sinners. All these details, all these events are thought of, worked out, weighed out before the foundation of the world. You will give men some freedom and yet limitations. You will allow Satan to rebel, the fall to occur, sin and curse to enter into the world. Yes, you could stop these things, but you're going to allow them. Why? Because in the end, because you know better, it will be an opportunity for you to put your glory on display to creatures who will live forever and to gather for yourself glory for all eternity. You will hold men responsible, but at the same time, you will be guiding your creation to its perfect ends, to the very dot and perfection of the will that you have determined before the foundation of the world. Jesus' birth, his life, his death are all thought out in the most exact way so that some will be saved by grace. So that all are without excuse. So that men are responsible for their rebellion and you are responsible for their salvation. And Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, will come into the world and he will die at the hands of sinners. On the very day you have appointed, not a day sooner and not a day later. And he will be laid in a tomb 
And three days later, he will rise from the dead on the very morning of your your choosing. Not Not a morning sooner or a morning later. You will plan it all and you will execute your plan to perfect precision. Thus, Peter will be able to boldly proclaim in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan. And foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross the hands of godless men putting him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter goes on to list multiple prophecies. Prophecies are nothing more than glimpses into God's eternal decree and to show us how God fulfilled in the death of Christ the very predictions he made to let us know that he had a plan for all of this. Peter, a few days later, would say in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, or 27 through 28 of Acts 4, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. We tend to look at Jesus' betrayal and death as a sad thing. And you know what? We're going into it. We're on the final stretch of Luke. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get Jesus resurrected by Resurrection Sunday. (laughs) I was was looking at my schedule this week and I was redoing it. And I thought, man, Jesus is rising from the dead the week after Easter. And I asked the secretaries, do you think that's okay? And they said, no. So I had to combine some sermons to get him resurrected on the right day. But a lot of times when we approach, when we approach Jesus's betrayal, his death, his, his crucifixion, the trial, it can be such a bummer, a mournful thing, a sad thing, but it shouldn't be. David wrote in Psalm 118, verses 21 through 23, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. What? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How often has the death of Jesus been treated as a tragedy, as an unjust abuse of the Lord Jesus Christ, a helpless victim who, having fallen into the hands of evil men, was then cruelly and unjustly tried and tortured and crucified. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested and Peter took out his sword and tried to lop off Malchus's head? Malchus was the servant of the high priest. And of course, Malchus, wanting to keep his head, ducked. And so Peter only got his ear. 
Jesus then healed Malchus's ear. And then do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54. Let me remind you. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? It is the most perfect way for it to happen. Was Jesus a helpless victim? Was, was Jesus in his humanity captured like a wild animal and then killed by evil men against his will? Do you remember what Jesus' statement was in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18? He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the father. He was no helpless victim. The prophecies in the Bible are not the result of God looking into the future and seeing what evil men would do and then telling us before it happened. God is sovereign. The Lord in Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of purpose from a far country. Saying truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. That is the God we serve. In Ephesians 1.11 it says, He works all things after the counsel of His will. All things after the counsel of His will. Was Jesus suffering something He didn't know would happen to Him? No, He knew it was going to happen. He planned it. He planned it. He willingly submitted himself to the plan he made before the world began. And you need to ponder these things. I want to bring these things out as we head towards Resurrection Sunday so that you are not caught up into a lot of the mournful, oh, too bad, oh, Jesus is a victim type thoughts because Jesus is not emaciated and hanging on a cross anymore as you see him in the Roman Catholic churches. He is risen and risen indeed. He is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And he did it. Hebrews 12 2 says for the joy set before him. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. And what is the joy? I mean, what was the joy set before Jesus as he went to give himself into the hands of murderers, to be tortured, to be crucified. What was the joy set before him? It was this, accomplishing a way of salvation for you and for me. That was the joy. Jesus was excited. 
Not to suffer, not to hurt, not to die, not to be nailed to a cross. Of course, he saw beyond the suffering. The end goal was that he would provide a perfect sacrifice so that anybody who believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or as 1 John 4.10 reminds us, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of sins. The word propitiation is a, a word that means a sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against Sin and sinners. Do you see what all of this means? Jesus' betrayal, his torture, his death, his burial, his resurrection are no freak accidents. They are the predetermined plan of God. As Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord who was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And why was he pleased to do that? So you and I could be saved. The terrible actions of men and Satan against Christ are at the same time, and even more so, the perfect plan and demonstration of God's love to us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ are a huge canvas and on that canvas are, let me show you my love to you. That is what's on that canvas. And you need to see it there before you. It was painted and it appears in the art gallery of scripture for you to look at. The Lord loves sinners. And he wants them saved. And he sent Christ to prove it. Jesus is not on the cross, tortured and emaciated as some helpless victim. He is the resurrected Lord. And now as you look at all these events, you need to think in your mind over and over, behold the love of God. So follow in your Bibles as I read Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, where Luke writes this. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. For they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. I just want to point out 
three actions here, all part of God's sovereign plan, all predicted, all orchestrated by God, which led to Jesus's being betrayed and crucified, making a way of salvation so that all who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the first is this, Jesus was hated by his people. Look at verse one of chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover was approaching. In Exodus chapter 12, God had Moses institute the Passover. What was that about? You remember the people uh, were in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt. They had lost lost all rights and privileges. God raised up Moses. God tells Moses, go tell them to do this. Have them all gather in their house because this night I'm going to send the final plague over the Egypt. I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons. But what I want you to do is I want you to gird yourself up as if you're getting ready to go on a journey because you are. And I want you to prepare this Passover lamb. I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to take some blood. And I want you to put it over the, the, the lintel of your, of your doors. So that when I send out the angel of death to kill every firstborn, when it sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it will know to pass over so that your firstborn doesn't die. And so that night, The angel of death went through Egypt and all the firstborn died. But whenever the angel saw the blood of the lamb, it passed over. And then God said, and then I want you to celebrate a feast of unleavened bread as you, as you were to leave Egypt and leave behind those sins and those false gods. I want you to eat only unleavened bread to symbolize your departure into a newness of life, leaving behind your sin, no yeast, no leaven, to start a new walk with me. Come to the Passover meal, the Seder that we're having. You'll learn all about it. There's a lot about Jesus pictured in that celebration. So it's Wednesday evening. Thursday evening will start the Passover day. Remember in Jewish reckoning, days started in the evening, not the morning or not at midnight. They started in at sunset the evening before. So Passover starts Thursday evening at sunset and goes to Friday evening at sunset. If you have ever had matzah and and unleavened bread you know it is dry it's brittle it's not you can't tear it it must be broken and jesus will soon be in the upper room and he will be talking with his disciples and he will be celebrating the passover meal and he will take a piece of of unleavened bread and he will say this is my body which is for you and then he'll break it to symbolize him being crushed giving his body in substitution so that we might be saved. Luke twenty two nineteen says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Did you hear it? Which is given for you. For you. Jesus gave his body up to be tortured and crucified for you. The last meal he ate was the Passover meal, which has so many things. Come to the Seder if you've never been to it. We always have one, usually in the fall, just to, just to see all the rich symbolism of Christ in that meal. 
Jesus, the true lamb of God, the true Passover lamb, the one whose blood, when applied to the guilty sinner by faith, causes the wrath of God to pass over them, was getting ready to offer himself up. The day predestined by God for Jesus to be betrayed, rejected, tried, and crucified is approaching, and it is a day of rejoicing, not mourning. Look at verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death for they were afraid of the people. If you have been here in previous weeks, we have seen how Jesus exposed and humiliated and forced the religious leaders to the conclusion that he was the Messiah, the son of God. And yet they just couldn't handle it. They just they just couldn't accept it. Because they didn't love God, they didn't love Jesus, the son of God. They wanted control of the vineyard. Of Israel, and they were unwilling to give it into the hands of the owner of the vineyard, and so they plotted against him to kill him so that they could take possession. They have wanted to kill Jesus and take the inheritance from him, and now provoked, they are committed to seeing it through. Jesus must be killed. And they have been pushed in this direction by Jesus himself, who, orchestrating his own death, in control of his own death, is driving him to the place that so that he can die, not on the day of their choosing, but on the day of his choosing. He wants to die on the Passover as the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there is an obstacle. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, and they were afraid of the people. Mark chapter 14, verse 2, a parallel text tells us the religious leaders were afraid of causing a riot. Jesus was just way too popular. There were so many people who were fascinated with him, so many people who saw him do miracles, so many people who were crowding around. They thought if we arrest him in front of all those people, there's going to be a riot. And so we can't do it. Matthew 26, verse 5, another parallel text tells us that the religious leaders had decided to wait until after the feast, after Passover and after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when all those people visiting Jerusalem would all depart and go home and visit. Jerusalem would, in comparison, be like a ghost town after that. And then they would seize him and then they would arrest him because there was just too many people. But then Judas came forward. Moved up their plans. Imagine that. How interesting. Luck? Coincidence? Little did they know, but they were playing into the very hand of God who wanted Jesus to be arrested, tried, and slain as the Lamb of God on Passover day. So somewhere between Thursday night and Friday, they had to get Jesus crucified that was the counsel of god and so this brings us to our next place judas possessed by satan look at verse three satan entered into judas who was called iscariot belonging to the number of the 12 stop there the first this is the first of two occasions recorded in in the gospels of satan entering into judas now the phrase enter into is a very technical term whenever it's used of demons or satan it speaks of demon possession it always talks about demons entering into or when they're cast out extracted coming out of coming out of here satan enters into judas 
When a demon possesses somebody, they take total control over that person. They are now the person's body. They override their volition, their will, and they take over. There's a lot of unbiblical thoughts about demon possession out there. Mostly come from Hollywood. And of course, that's wrong. Demons can't possess or enter into believers. Why? Because the believer is a child of God. Because a believer has Christ and the Holy Spirit in them. Because the scriptures say the evil one will not touch them. Because the scriptures say they are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved them. Can they be oppressed? Yes. Can they be hindered? Yes. Can they be tempted? Yes. Possessed? No. Demon possession is when one or more evil spirits enters into an unbeliever. Judas was an unbeliever. And this is why Jesus refers to him as a devil in John 6, 70. Jesus specifically chose Judas, knowing Judas would never believe in him, and that he would be the perfect one for Satan to use to betray him. It's amazing the mind of God in this. It just kind of just, man, it just blows you away. How Jesus, even when he's first picking the 12 three years before, he's thought it all through. He knows it all through. He knows the end from the beginning. And so he chooses a man who will look like a believer, follow him for three years, and yet be available for Satan to take over at the critical moment so that he can die at the perfect day he wants. Now, if you want to know more about demon possession and angels and demons, I preached a whole series on it in February of 2006. You can go online and look at that. If you want to know uh, more about Judas, you can look at a sermon in March 1st of 2005. There's a lot of good lessons to learn about Judas, the bad apple. But Judas was chosen. He gave up all to follow Jesus like the arrest of the apostles. He was trusted. He heard Jesus teach and preach. He saw Jesus do miracles. He was sent out to do evangelism. He hung out with Jesus and the apostles. And yet in spite of all of that, he was still an unbeliever. Christians often forget that unbelievers, all of them, the scriptures describe them as children of Satan. Even if they are moral, even if they are religious even if they are in the eyes of society, good people, why would it call them that? Because of this reason, because when someone will not submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they're putting themselves against Christ like Satan. They're aligning themselves with the very purposes of Satan to oppose God. I will not submit to you, God. I will not turn from my sins. I will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, they align themselves with Satan. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26 describes all unbelievers as snared by the devil and held captive by him to do his will. It's why Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and through 3 describe all unbelievers as walking according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Oh, the unbeliever thinks, hey, listen, I am a free agent. I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can be whatever I want. No. You can only sin against God until God saves you. All unbelievers are the pawns, the children, the slaves of Satan. This does not mean that they're all demon-possessed, but it means they're all prime candidates for it. 
They are already deceived and working for the enemy and they don't even know it. And though they may call themselves Christians and go to a Christian church and do the same good deeds as other Christians, if they have not truly repented of their sins, if they've not really placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not by works, but because of what Jesus has done for them, if they've not really been born again, they're unbelievers still, just religious unbelievers. And though Judas personally was chosen by Jesus and lived with him for three years and saw all the miracles and everything, Judas was unwilling to submit to the lordship of Christ. And so he remained in the midst of the chosen 12, an unbeliever. The true sign of a believer is not a mere profession, not even a mere profession with external obedience, but it must be a profession with obedience from the heart out of love to God. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I just boggled Jesus. Why do you say Lord, Lord, and then you don't do what I say? That's a contradiction. That's an oxymoron. It's a, a paradox. It's twisted. It's wrong. If you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan uh, at the beginning of his ministry, Luke Chapter 4, verse 13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And I am sure that all the way through Jesus' ministry, Satan was tempting him and trying to snare him because if he could get Jesus to commit one sin, Jesus would no longer be a perfect sacrifice and we would all perish. And so he was after him. But here, Jesus doesn't go after or Satan doesn't go after Jesus directly. He goes after him indirectly through Judas. Who he is using now as an instrument since Judas is really one of his children. And may we learn this important lesson that Satan and demons not only assault us directly. But they use other people to lead us into sins against God. Remember that. Satan, though he thought he was so tricky to use Judas to betray Christ, but he was playing right into the hands of God. Satan, more than anyone else, wanted to see Jesus dead. Look at verse 4. It says, and when, and he went away, this is Judas, and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might Betray him to them. Now keep in mind that at this point, Satan has control of Judas. Satan is talking through Judas to the chief priests and officers. Satan has overridden Judas's volition and he has taken over. The chief priests and officers is a reference to these high-ranking officials who kind of policed and kept control of the temple mount. And imagine how excited they were because this is the end of Jesus's um, preaching on the temple mount day after day to these multitudes and answering all their questions and humiliating them in front of the crowds. And, and they're just, they're at their wits end. They want to see Jesus gone. And then one of the 12 comes and says, hey, I might be able to help you out. Hollywood betrays Satan as a free agent, all-powerful, able to do what he wants, when he wants. But Satan is a defeated foe. And he can only do what God gives him permission to do. 
Remember when Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He's come to me asking me. Now, why would Satan do that? Because Satan is God's dog on a leash. And he can only do what God says. And in the end, as Luther wrote in his great hymn, one little word shall fell him. In Job chapter 1 and 2, we see Satan giving account to God. In the Gospels, we see Jesus casting out demons with the word. Yes, greater is Christ that is in us than Satan who is in the world. We are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. The evil one will not touch us, the scriptures say, if we know Christ. If we don't know Christ, we're already his. He owns us. Third, Jesus is sold for a pittance. Look at verse 5. And they were glad and they were agreed to give him money. Imagine their delight when, you know, here one of the 12 all of a sudden sneaks away and, you know, they see one of the 12 coming. They go, oh no. Now Jesus has sent one of his lackeys to us. And Judas comes up and says, I know you guys don't like Jesus. Uh, how about I help betray him into your hands? I mean, their eyes probably popped out of their heads. They probably thought, whoa, you mean you're going to help us? And they probably looked at each other with sinister smiles on their faces and said, we would be glad to discuss this proposition with you. And little did they know, but they were talking to their father, Satan. And that is why they were so pleased. Their hearts resonated with his. They had the same murderous intentions. Jesus said to them earlier in John chapter 8 verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The religious leaders are entertaining Satan unaware and they love it. The text says they were glad because their hearts were one with Satan. In Matthew chapter 26 verses 14 through 16, it tells us that they offered to give Judas money, 30 pieces of silver to be exact. And Satan being in control of Judas at that time accepted their offer. There was no bargaining, no haggling. He accepted their first and lowest offer. Now, when you are bargaining and you're a money-loving person, you always lowball the person to begin with. I mean, that's how you do it. Jews still do it that way. Go to Israel, you'll find out. You know, if you say, well, we'll pay you a nickel. A nickel! Come on, come on. Let's talk about several thousand dollars. Oh, we could never do that. <laughs> I mean, here, guy, you're a little bit inflated about how much this is worth. I'll give you 2,000. I mean, instantly they've gone from like zero to, you know, they're coming close to what what's it's actually worth. And then you kind of haggle down until you kind of reach this place. But notice here. 
They offer Judas a ridiculously low sum of money to betray Jesus. And I'm sure they expected Judas to come back with, well, we're talking about the Messiah here. You know, the miracle worker, the the hugely popular son of David who just came into town in his triumphal entry, the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies in that book you say you believe, the one that has done so many miracles over the past three years that even the Pharisees say, we know he is from God. We're talking about that guy. So let's ratchet it up significantly. Judas was a lover of money too, and the Jewish leaders would have paid much more to get rid of Jesus. But Satan, who is in control of Judas, has no need for money. And to add insult to injury, he accepts their lowest bid. Okay, we'll take the 30 pieces of silver. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 11. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew and then back a couple books, you'll get to the one of the minor prophets to the book of Zechariah. And go to Zechariah chapter 11. In verses 4 through 11, Zechariah is prophesying against the wicked shepherds or rulers of Israel. And then in verses 12 through 13, Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13... We read this, I said to them, now this is the Lord, this is the Lord speaking here. If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord, and in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh, said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price, sarcasm here, at magnificent price as which I, Yahweh, was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the potter, uh, to the potter in the house of the Lord. And the Lord there is Yahweh. Notice the sarcasm. That magnificent price as which I was sold or valued by them. You're going to sell God For 30 shekels? By the way, this is one of the many texts which is good to share with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is the one who fulfilled this prophecy. We know this from Matthew chapter 27 verses 9 and 10, which tells us specifically this prophecy was fulfilled when Judas paid, was paid 30 shekels of silver to betray Jesus. The Lord, Yahweh. We see later after the betrayal when Satan departs from Judas that Judas will feel some guilt. He's going to feel some guilt and try to give the money back to the Jewish leaders. Of course, they, being the pious souls that they are, go, well, we could never accept any blood money into the temple treasury, even though they're the ones who paid him to betray Jesus. We could never do that. Judas, so now, having Satan have departed, feeling guilty, takes the money and he hucks it into the courtyard of the temple. The Jewish leaders then, you know, like a bunch of pigeons picking up popcorn, go and they gather it all and they go well we can't put this in the treasury so that's by the potter's field and we'll 
turn it into a cemetery for strangers to be buried. And then Judas goes out and hangs himself. And so in these actions, Satan becomes God's instrument to accomplish his perfect will and to fulfill prophecies spoken of hundreds of years before that through Zechariah. Judas actually betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He tries to give it back. It goes into the temple. They won't take it. They buy the potter's field just like the prophecy stated. And so God is still in control. He's even working out all these details of the purchase and the amount and what is done with the money. Look at verse 6. So he, Judas, consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him and uh, bring him to them apart from the crowd. The Gospels do not tell us when Satan left Judas, but he did. We know this because... By the next evening, Satan entered into Judas again. As they're celebrating the Passover supper, uh, John chapter 13, verses 2 and 3 tell us, During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, and it goes on to talk. But the whole point there is Judas was already wanting in his heart to betray Jesus. He wanted money. He was a lover of money. We know that from the scriptures. So sometime after Satan entered into Judas the first time and marched him over and made the deal, he departed. Then when Judas was in the upper room, Satan then entered into him again, which we will learn in weeks to come. Satan offered the temptation and Judas took the bait. And we shall see in weeks to come that Satan figured out uh, in the upper room as the disciples were celebrating the Passover meal that Jesus would be going to the garden and pray as he made it a habit to pray there. And that would be a perfect place because it would be late at night. It would be in an orchard, basically, is what the garden is, a big olive orchard. And that then they could ambush him there away from the crowds and have him arrested. It would be a perfect place. It would be at night. Nobody would be around. And this is why in the upper room, Satan enters into Judas. And Judas, now being in control by Satan again, leaves. Satan has to make sure that he has enough time to get and find the Jewish leaders, instruct them of where Jesus will be, that the Jewish leaders have enough time to gather together a mob and get to the garden so they can arrest Jesus before he departs, walks over the hill of the Mount of Olives to Bethany where he's been staying night after night. But think about this. When they're in the garden, Jesus decides, for some reason, to pray extra long. As a matter of fact, the disciples fall asleep twice he prays so long. Why do you think he's doing that? Why didn't he just pray and then go over the hill? Because he's waiting. He's giving himself in 
to their hands. He knows he's never going to go over that hill again. And so he prays and prays until the time is right. Satan thought all of this was going according to his plan, but in reality it was all going according to the Father's plan. It was the the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in his eyes. It was the day that the Lord had made, and he tells us, commands us to rejoice and be glad in it. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, the great lion, he's powerful and strong and in order to save the guilty party, offers himself up into the hands of the wicked queen and her devilish minions. And it's very sad and it's, it's tragic. But you can tell that he knows what he's doing. The whole thought of being humiliated and shaved and then killed is not exciting for him. But he marches forth. He gives himself into the hands of his enemy willingly and they kill him. And of course, they don't, they don't understand. The children don't understand why this is happening. And so until the next morning when he rises from the dead and then they realize, oh, this is so good. Does Christ in that same way may appear sad to us as we enter into this part of the gospel narrative, but he is the conqueror. He is the savior. He is our dread champion. He is willingly going forth of his own volition, giving himself over of his own free will into the hands of evil men to accomplish a good purpose, a perfect purpose, a purpose he determined before the foundation of the world that he would sacrifice himself for those he came to save. And so believer... You need to see your king going forth to save you from your sins and rejoice. An unbeliever, you need to put your faith in Jesus. Because he has gone forth. He has paid the price. He has died on the cross. He has made that perfect provision so that anybody who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you need to do that because not only has he done all of those things that history has verified, he's coming back in glory. He died for you. He made a way of salvation for you. Believe in him and the wrath of God will pass over forever. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this great text. What a blessing it is to see your sovereignty working through so many details to accomplish your perfect plan of salvation for sinners. Father, we know we are all sinners We know that we have not lived perfect lives. All of us have gone astray like sheep. Each of us has turned to his own way, but we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Father, if there's somebody here this morning who has never given their life to you, who has never seen themselves as a sinner in need of grace, may they turn now in faith and believe. May they trust Christ alone for their salvation. May you give them the free gift of eternal life and transform them into new creatures. Father, for the rest of us, knowing these things, may we live for you. May we tell others about you. 
And may we anticipate your soon coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.